Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, is Ontario opening too quickly, or are we actually dragging our feet? Hamilton has not one but two Grey Cups to look forward to in the near future. That's right, the Hammer will host the 2023 Grey Cup as well as this year's game. And we look at issues surrounding Hamilton's 10 encampments and homelessness in cities. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, as we mentioned, uh, this could be a pivotal day for the province of Ontario in our battle against COVID-19 and the Delta variant and uh, what we've been dealing with for the last, well, almost 19 months now. Uh, when the Premier makes uh, his announcement at his presser at Queen's Park at 11 o'clock this morning, uh, there's going to be questions, no matter what he wants to talk about vis-a-vis uh, the new app or, or the, you know, the coming out of this uh, phase that we're in right now. Uh, a lot of us are wondering just what's going to be happening next, how this is going to impact us heading into the winter. I mean, you know, it's going to get colder. We're going to spend more time indoors. To uh, get a read on exactly what could be happening and uh, going forward here uh, to maybe assuage some of the concerns we've had, please to welcome back to the program Thomas Tenkate, who is a professor with the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Bill. Thanks, thanks for having me. Let me ask you, this question I, I get time and time again when we find out that there's going to be an update from either the medical officer or the premier or whomever it might be, uh, because the criticism about this government, and I suppose just about every government right now, Professor, is they're going too fast with this recovery. No, they're not going fast enough. They're going too slowly. They're being way too cautious. Are you comfortable with the, with the pace at which we're doing, doing things here in Ontario? Well, yeah, I... When I look at you know other provinces, I think Ontario has been a bit more cautious than other other provinces. Uh, but that's that's because I think you know the numbers that we've been seeing uh, you know has meant that like initially I thought we were sort of a bit flip floppy, but now you know since since uh, sort of midway through the pandemic they've been a little bit more cautious, and so so I, you know I. Overall, I'm, uh, you know, I think the the way they've handled the, you know, particularly the last six months or so has has been has been, uh, I think, as good as they probably could have done. When we see some of the statistics, uh, you know, the fact that, that new cases are down, uh, hospitalizations seem to be down. Uh, there's still some concern with some IC units in different parts of the province, uh, but we're obviously having discussions now with taking in patients from Saskatchewan, possibly, because which indicates that we do have some capacity even with an ICUs. Is there a concern here, Professor, that we may be just taking our foot off the gas too soon? That, that you know, th- thinking perhaps, hey, we're the worst is over, we're out of the woods now. Uh, well, yeah, definitely. That's always the you know, the concern is that uh, when when do you start sort of easing off, and how much do you ease off? I think you have to sort of really be guided by by the numbers and you know and what we're seeing, and and you know what what we've seen for the last you know few weeks has been that we've been on a sort of a steady uh, decline in numbers, and what's really and and if you look at the overall uh, sort of curve, the the epidemic curve. We, we sort of had we've had a number of three sort of recently sharp peaks and now we're in a we've had a sort of a, a slow up uh, a plateau and now we're on a slow downward trajectory and so so for me my what that's sort of telling me is that we're really in the in the sort of the end phase of this because and that's really driven by the the high vaccination rate so so I think you know we we're really in that the the end phase of it and so then the question is how do we make sure that we uh, you know we sort of get out of it and uh, you know as best as we can and you know one one sort of uh, sort of thing that's going to be interesting is is whether or not we have any any sort of uh, upward spike in in the next week or so uh, because of the Thanksgiving weekend and so so that's really the test uh, and and I think then we'll be sort of I wouldn't want to say we're in the clear but we're we're in a in we're in a trajectory that that is saying that we're we're getting to a point where then we're we're sort of this might be our sort of our uh, endemic numbers what is the numbers of cases that we're just going to continue to have for for an extended period of time and so so from that perspective you know some people are saying you know when do they call the pandemic over and and my sense is you know it's not going to be sort of officially designated as over we'll just be having some lingering sort of restrictions for for a while i'd expect yeah i i know we all probably have the middle picture of our mind of, of, of premier kenny in alberta on july 1st basically almost making that declaration don't worry no more restrictions everything's fine well that, that prior to but that was then this is now but 
you know, when you talk about the potential for, for, for spikes once again, and, and Dr. Moore mentioned that yesterday too, let's wait a few days and see what the numbers are like for Thanksgiving weekend because of that incubation period. Uh, there was an anticipation also, Professor, that there might be a spike when the kids went back to school. Uh, we're almost at the end of October right now. That hasn't really materialized. Is, 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 that, uh, is that something that we can kind of grab onto and say, hey, maybe, maybe things are a little better than we thought? Yeah, so so definitely, you know, like I think the schools have done a really good job in in uh, in managing uh, the uh, sort of interactions between the students. Uh, that we, you know, we have seen some sort of localized uh, outbreaks or, or some mini mini sort of uh, outbreaks at, at a select number of schools. Uh, mm-hmm. So so overall, you know, what what that what's that is telling me is that you know the the kids are, are sort of. The risk for kids is is pretty low, uh, and so overall, you know that that's a good sign, and and that that's also a good sign from the perspective of moving forward, and and you know p- parents' decision whether or not they need to, uh, you know, when the vaccines are available for under eleven year olds, you know, the question of do I do I have my child vaccinated or not? So so that that's going to be a more yeah, you know, sort of difficult decision versus you know sort of old older people who are you know at, at more 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 at risk. So so uh, yeah, we're we're starting to get into some more nuanced uh, issues with the with the pandemic, I think, versus some of the more clear cut things that we've 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 had in the past. But you've mentioned it a couple of times uh, in our conversation here this morning, the vaccination rates. Uh, uh, we're not where we probably want to be right now. I know that uh, Dr. Moore and others keep saying we should be pushing up around 90%. We're not quite there, but we're we're in the neighborhood anyway, a lot better than a lot of other jurisdictions are doing right now. Uh, would the, the, the childhood vaccinations, would that push us closer to that number? Because that, that, that idea about herd immunity that we've been talking about for the last year and a half is still front of center, I think, for an awful lot of people to, to ease our, our, our angst, I guess, about heading out into public spaces again yeah yeah i I think definitely you know sort of allowing or enabling uh between five and 11 year olds to be vaccinated would would help uh boost the boost the overall vaccination rate for the for the community i suppose we're really you know we're really not sure exactly what the herd immunity level is uh you know initially when when the the pandemic started and and vaccination started we were sort of talking, you know, in the seventies, and then it, you know, with the Delta variant, it moved up to sort of in the eighties, and and then people are saying, let's try and get it into the nineties. You know, I suppose we, you know, in comparison to you know, sort of traditional uh, vaccinations and and traditional diseases, that we have a really good idea of what what the herd immunity level is. We, we're still really not sure, and for for this, and so so my sense is that uh, you know. We're probably at a point for for adults uh, vaccinations that they're you know that that apart from people sort of getting it now because of wanting to access non-essential services because of needing to be double 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 vaxxed, uh, you know the the others are probably uh, are really in the really sort of not you know people who are very hard to encourage to do it. So so we're probably you know we've we've seen that that. That the numbers, you know, the vaccination rate, we got up to seventy percent reasonably easily, but these, you know, the last uh, ten or you know fifteen percent or whatever has has been, uh, you know, reasonably hard to hard to get. So, so I think you know we're we're probably, you know, my sense is we probably have to say, well, this is might be as good as we can get from a vaccination rate, uh, apart from maybe a couple of more percentage points. Well, with that in mind, then, uh, would it be your advice then we hang on to some of the other protocols, uh, social distancing and masking are the two that come to mind. Uh, are they going to be part of our lives for some time to come then? Uh, well, yeah, like like I think, uh, you know, uh, wearing a mask, uh, hand washing, uh, you know, using, you know, using uh, you know, sort of uh, disinfectants on your hands, you know, uh, creams and whatever, as well as, as a social distancing, those three measures are, are really good measures anyway, uh, and and help for for a range of other you know, uh, viruses that are transmitted airborne, and you know, say particularly uh, you know the um, you know sort of the seasonal flu plus a whole range of things, you know, and that's why we've seen a, a dip in the numbers of those other 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 diseases that we normally see a see a, a you know quite a quite a number of cases in because these measures are are equally effective against those and so so you know I'd be encouraging people to uh, really be mindful 
all of that, uh, you know, for the next, you know, at least six months to a year. And, and uh, you know, I'd hopefully people sort of embrace that, you know, and particularly if you're taking transit and you're in really crowded situations to, to be really mindful of that. And, uh, and I think that aspect of wearing a mask in public, uh, I think that sort of that, that aspect of, of resistance to that has been broken down because of this. And so people are more comfortable. So, so if people did that, you know, we would definitely see uh, an impact on, on seasonal flu and, and other, other uh, conditions as well if we, if we continued that. That's an interesting wild card, and I'm glad you brought that up. I saw a report about that yesterday, because uh, essentially last winter the flu season was, well, just about eliminated. I think they had something like under 100 confirmed cases, and it's usually around 52,000. I mean, that's just a remarkable, but that's because we were in lockdown and we were wearing masks and everything else. But there's a concern in, in many medical circles now, Professor, that this could be a, a, a very vicious flu season uh, simply because it, it wasn't here last year, so we haven't really built up any immunity to it. Uh, and if we don't get vaccinated or continue to wear masks uh, there are some suggestions it might be more rampant and maybe even more severe than we've been used to over the last number of years i guess that's a, a word of caution that we need to keep our guard up oh yeah, yes yes definitely i think you know people you know sort of need to remember that the the seasonal flu is is you know it's not going away it's, it's going to be here you know sort of for for a long time to come and so and, and i think you know we've also got to feel that, uh, that or remember that the the COVID and whatever the new variants are, well, I don't think they're going to be going away either. And so it's really sort of saying, well, what what are the sort of acceptable public health measures or, or public health measures that are, are reasonably acceptable to the broader community that uh, we can have in place for for an extended period of time? And and uh, you know, definitely those three, you know, uh, hand washing, social distancing, and mask wearing are the three that are uh, are the ones that you know, people can implement relatively easily, uh, and uh, and and they they have, you know have a have a big difference or, or, or are really really effective. And so, uh, you know, whereas you know the other other issues around you know capacity limits uh, in in uh, facilities, you know, they're, they're all they're all sort of variants of the uh, of social distancing or, or you know and, and on those other measures. So so I think uh, you know even when they sort of raise the limits. Uh, or lift the capacity limits on, on say, non-essential businesses, what I think will probably happen, you know, relatively soon. Uh, the, you know, that I, I just really encourage people to still wear their masks and, uh, and you know, and, and uh, social distance. And, and particularly when, like, not all, you don't have to do it all the time, but it's it's really when you, you know, identify, okay, I'm in a, in a relatively crowded situation here, you know, whether or not it's inside or, or outside, uh, you know, it, you know, sort of being mindful of that. and But then that's putting it sort of back onto individuals and, and sort of people to sort of monitor the, you know, in essence, their own risk uh, and, and what, what risk level they're comfortable with. Final question, if I could. Uh, Dr. Moore mentioned something yesterday when he was speaking to the, uh, to the media uh, about, you know, there may be still some outbreaks, especially as we get into the colder weather, which apparently is going to be happening in a couple of weeks, we're told. Uh, and he's suggesting that as a result of that, instead of having, you know, if things get bad in one area, that there could be regional uh, restrictions as opposed to province-wide. Does that make more sense to you? Um, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, what, you know, what we've, you know, what we've sort of seen over, over the, the time course of the, the pandemic is that, that, that we have had, you know, sort of, sort of, specific uh, cohorts within the community that have been at much higher risk. And, and so, you know, sort of enhanced measures have, ha have been uh, put in place for those people, whereas, you know, while there's sort of the general measures for the general community. And so, so my sense is moving forward, you know, it's, it, we, we'll sort of move back to that. You know, so we've had sort of general measures for everyone for a while now, what's, what's sort of... Uh, been able to get things under control and so so we'll sort of my sense is the the general measures will sort of ease off and then when there's a need for a targeted measures those those targeted measures particularly on uh, might be based on geography or or uh, sort of social context or, or a range of other situations uh, that they'll be put in place uh, you know as well so it's, it's going to be that combination and and like we've had in the past it's really the combination of measures all working together where 
that, that helps us get things under control. Well, we'll see what the Premier's got to say later on today. Uh, Professor, always great to get your insight into that. Thank you so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. Yes, thank, thanks, Bill. Thanks uh, for having me. Have a great weekend, too. Thank you. You too. Professor Thomas Tincake from uh, the School of Occupational Public Health at uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Matt Affinick, the uh, CEO of the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats, is going to join us in uh, just a few minutes to talk about uh, the Grey Cup, which is, we know, coming up this year. But uh, the big news yesterday, of course, the 2023 Grey Cup is also going to be in Hamilton. Anyway, uh, interesting conversation with Matt a little bit later on. Right now, I want to talk about family docs. You know, we've talked about epidemiologists and so many other aspects because, I mean, we are just obsessed with COVID, as we should be because of the impact it's had on just about every facet of our lives. Uh, but what about the family physicians? Uh, there's obviously been a great deal of pressure on those uh, doctors and, and the offices and their staff because of COVID and because of some of the shutdowns. Well, now Ontario's top health officials are urging the province's physicians to resume more in-person visits and cut back on some of the virtual appointments uh, that apparently have become almost the norm for many people. Uh, in a joint letter Wednesday, about 45,000 doctors, three health officials say they expect all physicians who are now providing in-person care. They'd like us to move back to this. Uh, this was signed by Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, Patrick Discerny, who's an Assistant Deputy Minister, and uh, Nancy Whitmore, who's the Registrar and Chief Executive Officer for the College of Physicians. So what is the status with family docs, and, and how has this impacted them, and is it time to open the doors again? Uh, to uh, talk about all of this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Jason Profetto. Uh, Dr. Profetto is a family physician, also Chair of Clinical Skills, and the Assistant Clinical Professor with McMaster University's undergraduate medical program. Always a pleasure, Doctor. Thanks for the time today. Hi. Thank you for having me on. And, yes, I accept your invitation to bring me to the 2023 Great Cup. <laughs> we'll talk off the air, Doctor. I think we can do something for you there. Lots of time to get that planned. What is the status with family docs right now? I mean, you know, during the lockdowns, I guess it was probably elementary. I mean, you weren't allowed to go in there. But uh, how problematic has it been for family docs and their staffs during this to to maintain that that so important contact with uh, with their patients? Yeah, I, I think especially over the last 18, 19 months, it's actually been an evolving problem that has changed in a variety of ways. For a good chunk of time, there was a lot of fear and concern about providing in-person care, especially and perhaps specifically for individuals with infectious symptoms. So what do you do if someone calls you and they have a cough and a fever? And, you know, if there's a, a, a potential risk that it was COVID, especially prior to the vaccines being delivered, a lot, of, a lot of primary care offices really did not know what to do, when in reality for the past like 30, 40 years, it was a primary issue that we would see all the time. And I think what we're seeing now is that the vast majority, and we have information from the Ontario Medical Association to substantiate this, is that the vast majority of people, or the vast majority of doctors, are indeed providing a substantial amount of their care in person. With that in mind, uh, you mentioned obviously the game changer here was the vaccines themselves. Are, are doctors asking for proof of vaccination before they'll allow people to come into the office? Yeah, th there was a little bit of talk around asking for proof of vaccination in certain clinics. Um, the, the difficult part in medicine, though, is that we really cannot deny care based on whether or not someone is vaccinated. And this is a position that's been advocated by the, the CPSO and our governing bodies. So we do not require individuals to show us any proof of vaccination in order to enter the actual office. I mean, we always encourage it and we have conversations, but there are people for a variety of reasons, which we've chatted about a little bit in the past, yep. as to why they are not vaccinated, but we would not deny care. Uh, but because of obviously the concern, not just for the, the patients, or, but for the staff in the, in the building. I, I can remember that this is pre-vaccination. Uh, one doctor I know that in the east end of the city told me that very same story, that uh, somebody did come in with symptoms, and of course immediately he had to shut the office down, and everybody went and got tested. And thankfully everything was fine. But it, it was a pretty frightening experience. But I guess there's, I'm not going to say we've let our guard down, but I guess a little more confidence now that the vaccinations are out there. But I, I would imagine the other protocols, uh, you know, social distancing and masking, I guess, are still being maintained in those offices yeah you know so in in primary care in family medicine we have you know in a given week there's hundreds and hundreds of people that are in and out there's going to be a certain occupational risk that we have to assume and understand is going to be present as we're working 
I, I wish we had had a little bit more positive messaging around um, PPE, appropriate social dis- distancing, the encouragement of vaccines, and all of these things together would have provided almost like a multi-layered filtered approach to substantially reduce the risk that an infectious person comes in and infects everyone else. As opposed to some of the more, let's call them more arbitrary or vague guidelines in terms of uh, of all of these risk strat- risk mitigation strategies. Doctor, they mentioned in the letter here from Dr. Moore and the others that uh, a number of doctors, a lot of family docs were using the virtual uh, visits uh, during, I guess, the worst days of the pandemic and the lockdowns. What kind of feedback were you guys getting about that? Were people comfortable with that? Did they thought, yeah, I could get used to this? Or were they just aching for the day when they could actually have a face-to-face again? I, I, there, there's a mixed response. Um, virtual visits, we've learned, can actually be very, very helpful. There's, there's sometimes where there's a quick conversation. I need to call somebody to follow up on the, on the fact that they had an x-ray done, everything looks okay, or their cholesterol's a little bit high, FYI, this is what we would recommend. Quick chat, they don't have to take a day or an afternoon off work, and it's actually very practical. Um, for individuals that are sick, vulnerable, difficult to attend the actual office, it was helpful. There, there is just, however, so much value to being able to see and assess somebody in person, to lay your eyes on a child that is sick, to talk to someone in person that has more significant or substantial mental health impairment, I I don't think there's a replacement. And at that point, while it may be necessary at times to do virtual, virtual is definitely an inferior option. There's an interesting sidebar to this, too, that uh, as I was reading through some of the material from Dr. Moore and others, uh, during, I guess, the time when a lot of doctors were not taking regular office hours, some of them doing virtual, some of them were just saying, you know, you can call me over the phone. We'll sort of Anyway, long story short, uh, they said there was a, a spike in the use of, oh, of uh, emergency room visits. Uh, I guess people, you know, still had sore throats and figured, well, I can't go see my doctor or I got flu-like symptoms. I guess, I, I guess I'm going to go to ER, uh, which puts an unnecessary strain on, on that, those staff members, I would think. Yeah, so that, that was a huge issue for a long time. I, I feel like there's still probably a little bit of that happening. And the big problem is in the infectious, especially the upper respiratory tract infectious disease category. So I'm telling you, like, especially around fall, winter, there's a lot of kids that get sick, coughs and fevers, sinus congestion, ear problems, etc. Now the problem was is that the inclusion criteria to consider COVID-19 as one of the underlying diagnoses, the inclusion criteria was very wide. So if someone had a sore throat, a cough, a runny nose, a fever, it had to be included. And prior to vaccines, and even during the vaccine campaign, what were we supposed to do with all of these people? Otherwise, what would end up happening is it was like we were literally running a potential COVID-type clinic where we didn't have proper PPE, we didn't have proper protocols like the actual COVID centers did. So that, that, was, that was a pretty significant blunder. The other issue is, is that the vast, so all in all, COVID was a, is and was a pretty big significant issue, but there were a lot of other things that were not COVID that got clumped into that category for safety and precautionary measures, which led to an overuse of, for example, COVID testing centers, and specifically emergency departments that were perhaps better equipped than most primary care offices. We've always talked in this program about uh, the importance of family doctors in, in on the medical spectrum. The, uh, you're the portals. I mean, that's for whatever else may, we may need through the medical profession or expertise or specialties or whatever. Uh, it starts with that that consult usually with our family physicians about this because uh, you know the patients you know what they are you know what their history is uh, you, you understand that the, the challenges that they're dealing with how frustrating was it for family docs not to be able to, to maintain that relationship over the last number of months it, it, it was extremely frustrating i think for see there's a, there's a couple of layers to this too because when we say family docs i think what we should say is probably the family medicine office yeah. Um, it, it, it would not be unusual for staff who are greeting and dealing with a lot of the patients, like, like up close and personal, um, to get frightened and to get scared. And we didn't, know, we didn't know the best option. And, you know, for a doctor, I'm saying there's a certain occupational risk. Does that necessarily extend to the staff who are sitting at the front and dealing with people, uh, you know, right like, like person to person? 
So that was very difficult. And at the same time, we don't want to lose all of that contact for multiple reasons. But perhaps most paramount is that when you lose contact, things happen. And I can tell you, unfortunately, the amount of like cancer screenings that went, uh, you know, to the wayside, the amount of issues with mental health that we could have addressed in person, the amount of musculoskeletal, dermatological, different types of issues that we should have seen in person, we were unable to do so. And there's a bit of a legacy effect of that now in that it's catching up. So now we're seeing increased volumes, especially a lot of the docs, including myself, were saying the last August, this past August, was one of the busiest summer months we've had in our entire careers. Uh, i got about 30 seconds left here, and I want to just maybe give you an opportunity here to talk about flu season. I know that, you know, as you start to see another uh, family physicians and their staff start to face, uh, nurse practitioners and everybody else that are involved in this, uh, we're heading into it. And just around that time where we have to start thinking about flu shots uh, and things of this nature. Uh, you know, we talked about this, I guess, a year and a half ago during the first wave of the pandemic. Uh, we don't want to make a bad situation worse. The flu can be that wild card, can't it? Absolutely. Influenza vaccines are often very safe and very effective. We do recommend it. It is your choice. Get educated, speak to your team, and we need to still move forward with all the necessary precautions, but as well enjoy life as we do it. Doctor, always great to have you on the program to get your perspective on what's happening here. I really do appreciate it, and uh, we'll have that discussion about the 2023 Grey Cup soon, okay? That sounds great. Behind the home bench would be preferable. <laughs> I'll see what we can do. Thanks again, Doctor. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye now. Dr. Jason Perfetto, family physician, of course, and uh, he's with McCrest University's undergrad medical program. Speaking of uh, Grey Cups, we know that this year's Grey Cup is going to be at Tim Hortons Field. Uh, we also found out yesterday that the 2023 Grey Cup is going to be in Hamilton at Tim Hortons Field. Uh if there's a God in heaven, we're hoping that all this pandemic stuff is going to be way behind us by 2023, which makes the 2023 uh, festival and Grey Cup game uh, something that, that we're really going to be looking forward to. Matt Afinick is the president and CEO of Business Operations with Hamilton Tiger Cat Football Club. Uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update. Uh, Matt, thanks for the time. Uh, congratulations, first of all. Two Grey Cups in three years. Not a bad deal. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, certainly something we're thrilled about, Bill. And uh, more importantly, we know our fans uh, are, are thrilled about yesterday's announcement and uh, what's to come over the next two years. Well, let's we'll split this up. Let's talk about 2023, and then we'll work back to what's going to be happening this year. Uh, you talked to us in the past and about this, this fabulous week-long festival we were going to have, and you had all sorts of things in the works, and, and it was just going to be an incredible week for everybody. Clearly, because of COVID, all that's not going to be happening. But, I mean, I, do you just set that plan aside and say, okay, that's 2023 now, let's, let's work on that and embellish that uh, and, and use that as the prototype for what's going to be happening in two years? Yeah, well, no question. I think not just because it was a great plan. We're, uh, we're frankly, uh, that's our commitment to our partners in the CFL. As, as you well know, Bill, uh, this, the, the Grey Cup is a bidding process. And to win a bid, to host a Grey Cup, you have to be very thorough uh, in your presentation and plans of what you intend to do. So our plan was approved with great enthusiasm. So I'd say as it relates to 2023, that will be the baseline of our plan. But as we know, the world can uh, can change in ways. And um, you know, there's perhaps bigger things that we can do than even the biggest and boldest things in plan for 2021. So it buys us a bit of time in that regard. But, uh, yeah, we'll provide a good template. Well, I know that there was a, a, a conference or whatever between the, the, the Board of Governors, the CFL Board of Governors, uh, they had honchos. And, and as Randy Ambrosi told us, CFL Commissioner, uh, there was a, a strong feeling that, look it, this is going to have to be, we want a great, great cup this year, but we can't simply do all the things that we've done in past years with festival. And they thought it was only fair that, that okay, let's give Hamilton that shot in 2023 to show uh, all the great things that they had planned for this. So and with that in mind, we, we're going to look with great interest to 2023, but we have to... Uh, get this 2021 Grey Cup up and running right now, too. It's it's going to be a scaled-down version, but this is not just, okay, show up at the stadium, uh, there's a football game, now everybody go home. There are going to be some Grey Cup elements that are still going to be maintained, I would think, Matt. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And, and again, we, we uh, in working in partnership with the league, I think, you know, there's there's league-scheduled events like the arrival of the Cup and the commissioner's state of the league and things that, you know, are, are a core part of any Grey Cup. Those will obviously continue. Um, you know, as you know, co-integrate cups for multiple years, there's what we would call organic stuff going on, right? Just yeah. imagine the, the, the fan bases of the teams in the game just doing what that social piece that Grey Cup's all about, meeting in bars and restaurants and 
uh, just connecting with friends across the country. No doubt uh, that will be part of Grey Cup. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, within the regulations uh, that we have for indoor events um, in the province of Ontario, we'll work with the league to identify, you know, are there some things that we can do at, at the centre their venues across the city but yeah we we can't deliver um what we propose to deliver in 21 in 21 and our fans our city our partners um deserve the right to have that hosted the way it was intended so that's why the 2023 piece was important and again bill your point about the board making this decision i think it's a reflection of of you know our community here in hamilton and more importantly our tiger cast fans that hosting two great cups uh, in three years they knew those would be successful and that's a testament to the strength of, of the brand and the strength of our fans. Uh, you know, you mentioned, as you say, the CFO, the commissioner's uh, you know, State of the Union, State of the League address, uh, the, the award ceremonies, of course, you know, that, that go on every year. That's all part of Grey Cup uh, and some other things. But the, I'm glad you brought up about the organic stuff, the stuff that the fans pretty much kind of organize on their own. Uh, it, it, for instance, in Hamilton, you know, people understand this, and we saw this in past Grey Cups that Rebecca and I have attended. Uh, each each team kind of sets up one of the uh, the establishments here in town as kind of their home base, like, hey, that's where we're all going to hang out. If you're a Saskatchewan group, uh, this is where we're going to meet, at such and such a, a bar or pub or restaurant. The Thai Cats will get theirs and everything else. And, and then it's like a, a, a street party. Everybody kind of circulates from one to the other. It's not organized by anybody. It's not league sanctioned or anything it's just something the fans do uh because of the party atmosphere that's going on and i gotta imagine with the you know the proper protocols about social distancing and everything i, I would imagine that's going to go on and probably flourish like it has every other year yeah we're, we're certainly optimistic that's the case and i think that's one of the great benefits to being a host city and in in especially the businesses in the host city one of the big drivers of gray cups pardon me is uh is, is tourism and people coming in and you know spending their money in, in our city and driving um, traction activity for our local businesses. So I think they stand to benefit greatly from this, of the fact that the game uh, and a modified festival will be in Hamilton in 2021. Uh, questions I got yesterday when we made the announcement uh, from the CFL about the 2023 game, uh, and it re- referred essentially to what was going to happen this year. They said, well, you know, what about the game day itself? Is there still going to be a pregame concert, or a halftime concert? Uh, I, I guess the short answer from what I've been able to ascertain is yes, but uh, details to come is what I get. That's the, the gist I'm getting here, Matt. Yeah, no, actually, Bill, and I'm glad you brought this up, the, the notion of the word modified really only applies to the days leading into game day. Game day yeah. Sunday, Grey Cup Sunday is the same Grey Cup um, you would experience in any one uh, that you've been to in the past relative to the things that make it great, that make it more than just, you know, a quote-unquote normal uh, football game in the CFL from pregame music to pageantry to, you know, um, celebration of Canadiana and culture to a a great halftime show. All of those things will be delivered on December 12th. There is no modification uh, to the game day experience itself. We are not expanding the stadium just in light of, you know, the COVID circumstances, but that obviously has no impact on the experience itself. But uh, no, it's going to be a a great cup as you've come to know, Bill, in terms of the entertainment and the experience. Uh, And tickets for those who do not have tickets right now for the general public, uh, they go on sale shortly, don't they? Yeah, they do. So tickets have been on sale, as you know, for, yeah. for some time to Tiger Cat season seat holders only. Uh, we have a great tradition in our league where um, we make tickets available to the season seat holders of the other eight clubs. Um, and we will do that early next week. They'll have a week uh, window to snap a few up. And we figure when we go on public on sale on the 26th of October, um, there will be tickets available, but we don't think we'll be around too long. So those that aren't season seed holders that might be listening, uh, I think you tune in for uh, 10 a.m. on October 26th. That's when the general public on sale will start. Well, it's uh, part of Canadiana, and it's a, a great Canadian tradition, and uh, it's going to be in Hamilton this year and once again in 2023, and we're really excited about that. Uh, Matt, as always, thanks so much for this. Uh, continued good luck. I know you got to get back to work, so uh, we'll let you run, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate the time, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Matt Affinick, President and CEO of Business Operations with the Tattica Cats. And uh, lots of planning going on for the 2021 Grey Cup. And uh, the full extravaganza of Grey Cups is uh, going to be happening again 2023. Once again here in, in Hamilton uh, at uh, Tim Hortons Field and right through the city, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of ground to cover on the program today, uh, including a, a move by the city of Hamilton. They were in court this morning. Uh, fighting a human rights-based court challenge that aims to prevent the city from forcing people from these encampments in Hamilton. Now, this effort was led by a local community legal clinic on behalf of five people who are homeless, 
and live outside. It comes uh, amid a shortage of suitable shelter, housing options, uh, according to a lot of the data that's been uh, given to Hamilton City Councils over the last little while. Uh, so what's going to happen in court, and, and who's got the legal uh, high ground here, if, or, or if anybody does? Uh, to try to get some perspective on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Fugali, who is the uh, lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, criminal lawyer in Toronto. Andrew, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Good to be back. A lot of levels to unpack on this. There's a humanitarian issue here that, that's involved. Uh, it's getting cold. People are concerned about people on the street. This is not unique to Hamilton. Uh, it's not unique to COVID. I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. Uh, and I know the city of Toronto had a, 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 an issue a number of years ago. I can still remember when I was commuting to work in Toronto, the, one of the radio stations there back in the mid-'80s. And that whole section of the garden that people know now that, that have that beautiful landscaping and all the ads on it, that used to be uh, a, a place where they dug out holes and there were, there were street people living there. It was, it was for homeless people. Uh, and there was a big, big kerfuffle, of course, when the city of Toronto tried to clean that up. And now they're trying to do the same thing. How does a city proceed on something like this, and, and who has the legal high ground, if anybody? Well, it, it's an ongoing issue, Bill, as you've, as you've noted, like it, and also it happened during the Occupy Toronto uh, movements yeah. of, of 10 years ago. So these issues will consistently crop up um, whenever uh, a group of people try to occupy a public space. Um, the, the, the issue of legal high ground is... It, with an injunction, there's a three-part test, and it's the applicant who has the burden. So in this case, it would be uh, the legal clinics that are uh, bringing the motion for an injunction, uh, which is essentially to stop the operation of a law until its legality can be determined. And the three parts of the test are, is there a serious issue to be tried, number one? Number two, will the applicant suffer serious harm or irreparable harm if the injunction isn't granted? Um, and then third, uh, which party suffers the greater harm depending on which way the court would rule? And it, those are just sort of the three factors that the court has to consider. I can tell you, historically, it's been an uphill climb for the applicants in these situations, the people who um, are asking for the injunction against the bylaw. Uh, well, and a number of reasons. I don't want to get into some of these, maybe get your read on some of the things that have come up and some of the arguments, because as you say, this has been going on for quite some time, and, and it's not the first time that this city or any other city has said, look, we have to clean this up. Because uh, one of the questions, and, and again, I'm not so sure how the, deeply the court's going to go into this, uh, do I have the right to set up a tent anywhere I want on, on, on public property and simply say, look, if I don't have a home, I'm going to live here now. Uh, this is where I'm going to be. Uh, I would have thought the answer to that is no, uh, you know, so where do you draw that line? Where do you say, no, you can't do that, you have to move on, uh, even if you're going to be homeless, even if you're going to be exposed to the elements? I mean, it, it, it sounds like a cruel and harsh decision to make, but at the same time, I, I'm getting the sense from some of the comments from some of the city councillors here uh, in this area that they're simply saying, look, enough is enough. Uh, we're, we're getting complaints about the kind of things that are going on in these encampments or the very fact that they exist. Well, it's something you and I have talked about uh, in relation to COVID before, which is the yeah. idea of balancing. And and here you've got on the one hand individuals who are marginalized, um, who may not feel safe in a shelter system for reasons of physical safety or for COVID reasons. Um, and th the parks are the only place they can have the space to sort of set up uh, a, a tent or a temporary home. And on the other side, you've got the individuals nearby who will cite stats such as um, when these sorts of encampments come up, the level of, of um, petty and even violent crime will go up in the area as there are more people there. Um, and also just that it's, it's interfering with their public enjoyment of a public space. Um, and so you've got a lot of sort of counterbalancing issues that a court has to has to weigh. And more often than not, they've come down on the side of the public and the government that has passed the law that that the police are trying to enforce. So with that in mind, then, uh, is the fact that they've waited this long to enforce these things, does that does that weigh into the decision at all? Well, it's something a judge can consider. Um, you know, th there would be potentially a question from the bench of why now? Why, if you wanted to enforce this law, why wait four months or whatever it was? 
uh, before you actually went in and, and started doing something about it. But it won't override the whole analysis. It's just one piece in one of the factors that you would consider, that third factor of who's going to suffer the greater harm. And a judge would look at the city and say, well, it's been in any number of uh, you know weeks or months. You can't really say there's been a huge amount of harm. If there had been, I would have expected you to walk in earlier. So it's a factor, but it's not going to overtake the analysis. Uh, if the city were to win this, and if they said, well, the court says, okay, yeah, you have the right to go and clear this stuff out, is there an obligation on behalf of the city to, to find some place for these people to go to, or do they just say, get off this property? It's more the latter. Um, you know, often in these sorts of situations, I would expect the city to put forward before the court the range of housing options that are available um, to the people who have encamped. Um, they would bring up stats such as, you know, here's what our shelter system, the current state of it. Here's how many beds are available. Here are the social resources available to help these people in any setting other than them being in the park. If they don't do that, that would weigh against them in the court analysis. So I would expect some evidence along those lines to be led. It certainly was by the City of Toronto last year um, in a 2020 injunction um, uh, for one of the parks in Toronto where uh, there were a number of encampments uh, pursuant to COVID and a lot of the, the, uh, the homeless people there didn't want to stay in the shelters because they were worried about COVID and they had a myriad other reasons why they didn't want to be there. And the city led that evidence and it, it helped their position be successful. In the case of what's going on here in Hamilton, we do know from a, a meeting that uh, Hamilton City Councilors had with their staff about this the other day. It was a public meeting, Andrew. Uh, and one of the councilors asked, are there enough beds right now to accommodate, uh, I think it's uh, 150 people or something. Uh, yeah, 150. Uh, and the answer was no, we don't. Uh, does the court weigh that in, in, into, into the decision? Yes, and I would expect Hamilton uh, to also potentially lead evidence as to what temporary solutions they'd be able to come up with um, in the short term to alleviate the fact that they don't have 150 beds there. Um, if they don't, that would weigh more heavily against them uh, because then um, you're kicking these people out. They have nowhere to go as the weather starts to turn colder. And all of a sudden that second branch, the idea of these individuals suffering irreparable harm if the injunction isn't granted, that starts to get more weight because if you don't uh, uh, order the injunction. They're going to be kicked out now, uh, and then they've got nowhere to go. Uh, so I, I would think it's rather important that the city lead some sort of evidence to show that all of these people can be accommodated in some way and let the court weigh whether that accommodation will be good enough to satisfy them. How far does this extend, though, Andrew? If, if the city technically uh, has the authority to be able to do this and say no encampments don't do this or if there was an existing one okay you've got to leave now does that extend to street people i mean there are people that don't live in these encampments necessarily but we we see them sadly on on, on street corners and, and underpasses and things of this nature uh do they ask them to move on too i mean i i know there was a huge hue and cry years ago in new york city we all know those stories about what it used to look like on broadway uh, and they, they quote-unquote, cleaned it up, but they cleaned it up by building affordable housing and simply saying, look, you can't stay here, but there's a bed for you right over here. Uh, is, is the city jumping the gun by not having that safety net for them before they enforce this? Well, I, I, I think that's a very well-taken point, um, that if you don't have the capacity, um, all of a sudden the injunction starts to look a lot more reasonable. Mm -hmm. And in answer to the earlier part of your question, it does happen all the time. And and it, it I, I sort of term it like we talk about the invisible nature of this enforcement. People are often homeless people who set up shop or set up not shop, but set up a place to lie down on a street corner or in a subway platform. They're constantly being told to move along either by way of police enforcing the Trespass to Property Act or by enforcing a bylaw. And, and often we don't notice it. And we're noticing it here because you've got a critical mass of mm -hmm. people um, who are forcing the issue to become more into the public eye. And it's more organized. There's a group, there's community supports that can bring a court challenge. The legal clinics can be involved. For the individual who's hustled off of the Dundas um, uh, subway uh, uh, platform in Toronto, that's one individual 
there's no legal clinic waiting there to say, well, I'm going to bring an injunction right now. That's just not feasible in our court system. So it happens all the time. And, and these are the sorts of cases that bring it to the forefront of the public. And when this does happen, I know there's always a public outcry because you're concerned about the impact it's going to have on these people, but uh, does it become a public health issue? I mean, you talked about the incident in Toronto. I, I was working in Toronto uh, back in the day when the squeegee kids issue was such a big deal. And, and for people that don't experience that, anytime you'd stop at a, a stoplight, especially along the, you know, heading onto the gardener ramps or something, uh, they'd come out with the squeegees and try to clean your windshield. And they were looking for money, a, a donation of some kind, I guess. And eventually they had to shut that down and they said it was a public safety issue you can't be running out of the road and we still see this when i was coming off the garter uh, a couple of months ago of course you know you stop at the light there at jarvis and and there's usually a couple of people that kind of do the rotation and it's happening in every city now uh when when did the authorities step in and, and and say you can't do that anymore because you're putting yourself at harm and possibly others well they have the power to attempt to enforce their laws or enforce their laws in any time that they have grounds to believe that the law is being breached the reality of it is, um, is that there is often at the beginning of it some leeway given um, because of the humanitarian side of things um, for these people. But at some point, the police get inundated with complaints from concerned citizens. And there are public health issues that have to be concerned. Just thinking about day-to-day -day living, if you've got a group of people who are now uh, living in a park space that's not meant with any facilities for people to be living there, the public health issues start to grow and they, and they grow and get stronger each passing day those people are there. And that's absolutely something that a judge is going to consider. Well, and I know that because I've heard the argument and we've on this program, we've talked about this uh, in many, many times because as we've talked about at the beginning of the conversation here, it's not a new issue. Uh, and one of the decisions is, okay, do you supply them with that? Do you supply them with food? Do you supply them with sanitary uh, facilities and things of this nature? But the downside that some of the local councillors would say is, well, that, that's simply going to entrench them there. They're going to say, well, why should we move at all? Uh, so that you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't, no, no matter how you approach this thing. Yeah, it, it's it's one of these issues that really has so many layers to it um, in terms of poverty, in terms of social assistance in terms of public health and in terms of enjoyment of public spaces and our concept of what a public space is. These are often legally uh, very fascinating issues because you get a sense uh, from the courts as to uh, sort of where they're thinking in terms of, of the rights of individuals to um, enjoy public spaces uh, with their families and their friends versus you know the, the concern that you have for these people um, who simply don't have anywhere to go and who frankly have faced a system um, that does not have enough supports for them uh, with, with the mix that you often get with the homeless in terms of addiction issues, mental health issues, public health issues, affordable housing issues. There are so many strands to this. Um, and, and so it's, it's an unfortunate but fascinating um, issue in terms of where our barometer is for uh, these sorts of issues at this moment. The uh, the application, as you say, you, the the pressures usually on the applicant in situations like this. Uh, they argue the bylaws that deal with tent is, tents infringe on homeless people's rights to life, liberty, and security of the person by preventing them from engaging in essential life-sustaining activities in public place and from creating shelter for themselves. Uh, and, and I suppose the other argument to that is, yeah, we, you have that right, but not on a public space. I mean, it's a, it's it's a, a, a very very gray area here. It is, and uh, uh, that's why the test is as flexible as it is, um, where basically those three factors I outlined at the beginning of our talk, um, uh, the judge has to weigh them all. And, and these are the sorts of decisions that I think for judges are amongst the most difficult uh, that they're going to have to make because they're in the public eye. And if the injunction is not granted, these people will be forcibly removed almost immediately. And so there will be an immediate human ramification to the decision here. On the flip side, um, if the injunction isn't granted, you're going to have a very large group of residents in the area whose concerns continue and will grow. And um, uh, so it's, it's, as you say, it's very gray. I, I guess every community is going to have their own possible solution to this. I, I can remember, I'm, 
I was over in London, England a few years ago, and anybody who's visited there in the last little while would know that uh, right beside the Parliament Building, right across the road from it in Westminster Abbey, in that little area, uh, it's, they call it Protesters Park. It's a little parkette, and you're allowed to stay there. You, you're allowed to set up a tent there if that's what you want to do and put your protest sign. You're not allowed in the Parliament Buildings. You're not allowed in the other places, but you can stand up there, and, and they monitor it, I guess, and they have facilities there, and, and people do this. There's always a little encampment there, which I found was kind of uh, unique. I'm not so sure if anybody wants to try doing that here uh, because it, it tends to I guess address the, the areas of people that want to protest but we're talking about living here uh, and it gets a darn sight colder here than I guess it does in, in some places in Europe so there's a, a concern. Uh, we're told that uh, no matter what goes on today and no matter what's presented that the the, uh, the judge who's presiding here probably will not make a decision today. Is that normal in a situation like this Andrew? Yes because of how weighty the rights are here um, how much evidence is being adduced, usually in, in paper form, like in the form of affidavits and, and maybe quick cross-examinations that have quickly been done on those affidavits. But they're, they're going to have a lot of material before them. And frankly, these are just not cut and dry issue. There's a lot of weighing that has to happen. The judges have to decide here how much weight they're going to give to each piece of evidence in the context of, as we've discussed, these very, very significant and important societal issues. Um, and and so a, a, a relatively brief, I would say, um, adjournment or, or um, a period for, for the judge to reserve and consider their decision is, is not only uh, what I would expect, I think it's entirely appropriate. I, I don't think this is the sort of case where um, the the public would expect and want a judge to just rule from the bench right away. Um, I think that this is likely going to be one where the evidence is such that the judge should rightfully have the time to think about it a little bit. Well, we know that there are about 30 to 40 encampments in Hamilton, and what you in Toronto, of course, went through a similar process, of course, and then continuing to do with the, the Toronto City Council. Uh, very dicey issue, and, and it, as I say, it's not black and white. There's an awful lot of gray and a lot to unpack here. Uh, so good of you to spend some time with us today, Andrew. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure. Anytime, Bill. You betcha. Take care. Andrew Fergurley, of course, lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto and always a welcome guest on this program. Uh, and, and again, you, you, I, I know because we've talked about this, we've had representatives from both sides on the show as we've looked at this, and it's going on in London, it's going on in Hamilton, in Toronto, and, and many other cities. And uh, at, like so many other things, the, the pandemic has really kind of shone the light on an existing problem, and it's affordable housing, and uh, it's it's you know cities and all levels of government uh, that have done a lousy job of dealing with this issue and and this is one of the offshoots this is one of the uh, consequences of uh, of government action when it comes to housing and affordability and things of this nature and employment for that matter too so many different factors involved but uh, we'll watch with great interest to see just what the judge's ruling will be the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.